0: Listening to Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast where I, your host Alex, rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you, and more than likely, what your town mayor would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week we are back discussing true crime, but as always, before we dive into the case, we do need to chat about some housekeeping as well. I need to tell you what I need a distraction from. If you want to skip ahead, I will definitely put in the show notes when the actual case starts. In terms of housekeeping, just a reminder that Weird Destinations, a mini travel blog over on Patreon, will be resuming in October. And we have a new weird spam episode out featuring my lovely friend Jamie over on the here for the weird tier check both patreon features out over at www.patreon.com slash weird distractions podcast now in terms of what i need a distraction from this week so a little bit of a actual personal update i've recently started a new job so i am in the process of just learning how to do everything and just kind of getting acquainted to the positions i need a distraction from the fact that i'm feeling very overwhelmed luckily i do have some amazing co-workers that are kind of taking me under their wing and just being very very kind nonetheless starting a new job in a new town and just with a new team is very overwhelming but i am being optimistic that hopefully i can catch on quickly moving on from that i think it's time to just get into this week's case because honestly it's a doozy and not only that but it's a two-parter well what are you waiting for So this week we have a special Patreon requested case, so thank you so much to Shadow and their mom Cheryl for submitting this week's recommendation. Just a reminder that if you're a Patreon member and haven't submitted a case suggestion yet, send it my way, and if you have already suggested one that I have covered on the show, whether it was myself or maybe Christy that chatted about it, feel free to keep sending suggestions. I mean, our Patreon family is pretty small as of right now. And so I feel like I have capacity to cover more Patreon requested cases more frequently. If numbers do kind of add up in the future, then maybe not as much, but send them my way now come on, tell me what you want to hear. I will do my best to cover it. Anyways, Shadow and Cheryl requested the case of Gypsy Blanchard and the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard. This is a fairly well documented publicized case and because of that I'm going to split the case into two episodes. This is The first time ever I've done a two-parter on the show, so I'm both nervous and excited to do it. Mostly nervous because, you know, it's new and sometimes new things are scary. So the first half will focus on the backgrounds of both Gypsy and Dee Dee and what led up to the crime, while the second half will be focusing on Dee Dee's death, the trial, and present day information. All resources will be posted with each episode release, and please keep in mind that I do my best to try and use as many resources as I can, especially when it comes to true crime episodes. However, I am a one gal kind of show, so without any intention, I may miss something, and if that is the case, please kindly shoot me an email and let me know. Due to potential coarse language, adult themes, discussions of child abuse, and other distressing information, listener discretion is advised. (laughs) So let's kick things off and learn about Dee Dee. Claudine Dee Dee Petre was born on May 3rd, 1967 in Chack Bay, Louisiana. Dee Dee was reportedly one of five children of Claude Anthony Petre Sr. and Emma Lois is Claire. According to a Cosmopolitan article written by Helen Young, Dee Dee's family has made claims that she would allegedly steal from her family from time to time at a young age. The reasoning behind this, according to that same Cosmopolitan article, was possibly as a form of payback when things, quote, didn't go her way. I'm not a child psychologist or a child psychiatrist, so I can't diagnose Dee, Dee as to why she was doing what she allegedly was when she was a child, nor would I ever try to. However, I did want to highlight a direct quote from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry website just to mention what they've published to give some insight on the situation. Well, it is normal for a very young child to take something which excites their interest. This should not be regarded as stealing until the youngster is old enough, usually three to five years old, to understand that taking something which belongs to another person is wrong. Parents should actively teach their children about property rights and the consideration of others. If stealing continues or is present in a child with other problem behaviors or symptoms, the stealing may be a sign of a more serious problem in the child's emotional development or problems in the family. Children who repeatedly steal may also have difficulty trusting others and forming close relationships. Rather than feeling guilty, they may blame the behavior on others, arguing that Quote, since they refuse to give me what I need, I will take it, end quote. This isn't to say this is exactly pertaining to Dee Dee's situation, but I saw it and thought, you know what, I might as well mention it just to kind of give some highlight to the situation, especially when it comes to stealing in children. Shoplifting didn't seem to fall far from the family tree, as there are alleged reports that Dee Dee's mother, Emma, also reportedly would partake in a five-finger discount from time to time. I can't really back this up with court reports, but Claude, Dee Dee's dad, was quoted with once saying, her mama was a shoplifter and all kinds of stuff. I don't know how many times she would go to court for shoplifting and other things, end quote. Dee Dee's childhood was further painted, as some may describe it, as troublesome. I say this as accounts claim that Dee Dee's stepmother, Laura, once shared how Dee, Dee tried to kill her by putting the weed killer Roundup in her food, leaving Laura bedridden for nine months afterwards. Other resources have made claims that Dee, Dee allegedly may have attributed with killing her own mother, Emma, by starving her. Emma reportedly passed away at the age of 59 on June 9th of 1997 and from what I gathered there were never any formal charges for Laura or Emma. But some accounts do claim that Dee Dee was once confronted by her family about poisoning Laura in which she moved out of the family home shortly after. Dee Dee would at some point be arrested for several minor offenses including writing bad checks according to the Real Life Villains website. In terms of employment, Dee Dee reportedly worked as a nurse's aide, which she had, which she reportedly had a quote knack for remembering medical terminology and spitting it back. According to a Buzzfeed news article by Michelle Dean, when Dee Dee was about 24 years old, she met 17-year-old high school student Rod Blanchard sometime in the early 90s. Some accounts claim, some accounts claim that Rod's name was actually Rob. But for my retelling, I'm going to stick with Rod, as that kind of seems to be the most consistent name. If I am wrong, my sincere apologies. So Rod and Dee Dee began dating, and before long, Dee Dee was pregnant with Rod's child. The the young lovers and soon-to-be parents would get hitched, however the marriage was seemingly over before it began. By the time he was 18 years old, Rod reportedly realized he was not in love with Dee Dee, And the two would, and that the two may have tied the knot for the wrong reasons. Dee Dee and Rod separated before their daughter Gypsy Rose Blanchard was born on July twenty seventh of nineteen ninety one. Dee Dee, from what I came across online, had tried to rekindle the relationship with Rod. However, nothing came from it. Rod did go on to get remarried and have two children with his wife later on, but for now. Let's actually shift our focus and talk about Gypsy. So as mentioned, Gypsy was born on July 27th of 1991 in Gold Meadow, Louisiana. By all accounts, she was reportedly a healthy baby at birth. But when Gypsy was about three years old, Dee, Dee was reportedly convinced that Gypsy was suffering from sleep apnea as Gypsy would apparently stop breathing at night. Because I'm not a mom and have zero idea what is and isn't normal for newborns, I decided to do a little bit of some off-road investigation into sleep apnea in newborns just to kind of understand it a little bit further. In a direct quote from the Sleep Foundation website, quote, Apnea is common in premature newborns but can begin at any time during infancy. Babies may experience episodes of apnea while awake and during sleep. To be diagnosed as sleep apnea, pauses in breathing must occur during sleep and last at least 20 seconds. Shorter lapses in breath may be diagnosed as sleep apnea if they are accompanied by other symptoms such as reduction in heart rate or bluish coloring of the skin. I didn't come across any information that Gypsy was a premature baby. However, this information is more of a the more you know piece and less of a proving DD wrong piece. Even though Gypsy's sleep test came back normal, Dee Dee was still convinced that Gypsy had sleep apnea and was really unwell. Gypsy's health continued to be an ongoing concern, according to Dee Dee. Dee Dee allegedly claimed that Gypsy reportedly had leukemia, visual impairments, hearing issues, asthma, seizures, and muscular dystrophy. Because of all of these issues, along with a motorcycle accident involving her and her grandfather, Gypsy apparently needed to be in a wheelchair and also needed a feeding tube, according to reports. The motorcycle accident, I will mention reportedly, was not as severe as to potentially put Gypsy into a wheelchair. According to an interview Gypsy later did with Dr. Phil, she was quoted in saying, I did get into a motorcycle accident with my grandfather and I skinned my knee. And she, being her mother, Dee Dee, Took me to the hospital and then told me that the doctor gave her a wheelchair and I have to be in a wheelchair now. End quote. Supposedly Didi Dee Dee had Gypsy use a walker prior to the motorcycle accident. Dee Dee supposedly told Gypsy that she had to use the walker because of her muscular dystrophy even though Gypsy noted she didn't feel any different before or after using the walker. Gypsy was reportedly on a suburban mom's grocery list of medication, and according to the writings of Sarah Kettler for the biography website, Gypsy also had multiple surgeries, including procedures on her eyes and removal of her salivary glands. Gypsy's medications were often kept in a closet, with most of the shelves filled with different pills, ointments, and other prescriptions. Some believe that Dee Dee would give Gypsy medication that would would manifest symptoms such as uncontrollable drooling in order to demonstrate that Gypsy was legitimately sick. Gypsy also apparently had all of her teeth removed at a very young age, which may have been due to a plethora of reasons, such as side effects of an epilepsy medication that she was taking, among other things. At first glance, Gypsy was a child with so many medical concerns and Dee Dee was, seemingly, her only caregiver. Tragedy continued to rock their lives when Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana in 2005, which according to reports made by Dee Dee, left her and Gypsy homeless. I state this in accordance to the writings of Rose leo for a Good Housekeeping article, which indicated the following in a direct quote After Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana in 2005, Dee Dee and Gypsy showed up at a Covington, Louisiana special needs shelter, claiming Gypsy's medical records had been destroyed in the flood. Their heartbreaking story caught the attention of local media and charities and in 2008, they relocated to Springfield, Missouri, where Habitat for Humanity volunteers built the displaced family a customized wheelchair ramp and a home. Support for the two seemed to flood in, in which many accounts claim the two received free trips to Disney World, a customized van for Gypsy's wheelchair, and backstage passes to Miranda Lambert concerts. I also saw that apparently Miranda Lambert actually would donate money directly to Gypsy and Dee Dee, I'm talking a couple thousand here and there very sporadically, I believe, many began seeing the two as resilient, kind-hearted folks who were dealt a bad hand when it came to the game of life. However, for those who were frequent visitors in both Gypsy's and Dee Dee's lives, were supposedly skeptical of a few aspects. For example, usually someone maintains the same general physician or a family doctor for quite some time. Sure, you can always find a new one if your family doctor retires or if the relationship deteriorates, but typically there is one physician and maybe a handful of specialists depending on your medical situation. Based on what I read online, it seems as though Gypsy and Dee were constantly going to different physicians and specialists. The change up in healthcare providers would seemingly happen if a doctor or specialist disagreed with Dee's prescribed conditions for Gypsy. In a direct quote from the biography website, Quote, medical tests often showed inconclusive or contradictory results regarding Gypsy's diagnoses, but Dee Dee would stop seeing any doctors who questioned her daughter's ailments. End quote. Needless to say, if a healthcare provider questioned or didn't necessarily agree with what Dee Dee had diagnosed Gypsy, she would take her daughter to someone who would. Because Dee Dee did have somewhat of a medical background herself, working as a nurse's aide, many did take her word because she would presumably know. What she was talking about. Plus, she was Gypsy's mom and in many situations most probably felt as though they weren't in a position to really question her. Now, some tuning in who don't really know the case very well may be wondering, okay, but at some point Gypsy learned to talk. If Dee Dee was making up a sham, wouldn't Gypsy say anything? Well, according to some resources I came across online such as that previously mentioned biography website article, Dee Dee possibly told Gypsy to not disclose a lot about herself and medical appointments or to really Really anyone this means that if gypsy was feeling okay or she wasn't feeling as sick as her mother was making her out to be she was basically put in the situation where she wasn't able to really speak out against her mom and we'll get to that in a little bit as to maybe why this was happening too There was one documented health professional, though, that had their own interesting opinion on D.D. and Gypsy, which I'm going to chat a little bit about. So sometime in 2007, a pediatric neurologist named Bernardo Flasterstein consulted on Gypsy's case. According to a quick Google search done for this episode, the website Healthgrades gives the following description of Bernardo. Quote, Dr. Bernardo Flasterstein, MD, is a pediatric neurology specialist in Loxahatchee, Florida, and has over 44 years of experience in the medical field. Dr. Flasterstein, or Bernardo, saw Gypsy and Dee Dee while the two were living in Missouri. So Dr. Flasterstein examined Gypsy, and based on what I gathered from write-ups, he didn't necessarily think that Gypsy had what Dee Dee was diagnosing her with supposedly he didn't understand why gypsy couldn't walk on her own given her presentation and test results from blood tests and mris that were done and when i say based on her presentation accounts claim that dr flasterstein observed what had appeared to be muscle in gypsy's legs not only that too but I think he was able to test her to see how she could walk and how she was just in general presenting and based off of that alone, something wasn't sitting right with him. I should also mention that because Dr. Flasterstein wasn't necessarily getting the same results that aligned with Dee Dee's diagnoses, he actually reached out to previous healthcare providers of Gypsy's back in New Orleans. These healthcare providers shared that they discovered that her previous muscle biopsy tests had come back negative, meaning no concerns. In a direct quote taken from the Good Housekeeping article, quote, Bernardo Slasterstein consulted on Gypsy's case and wrote in her file that there was an unusual distribution to Gypsy's Gypsy's weaknesses for a muscular dystrophy and that there was no strong, and that there was a potential strong possibility, and that there was a strong possibility of Munchausen by proxy with maybe some underlying unknown etiology to explain her symptoms, end quote. So let's dissect this a little bit, specifically regarding the Munchausen by proxy statement. According to good old WebMD, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, Munchausen by proxy, is a psychological disorder marked by attention-seeking behavior by a caregiver through those who are in their care. Based on what I further read, Munchausen by proxy is considered a relatively rare behavioral disorder in which the person with the MSP gains attention by seeking medical help for exaggerated or made-up symptoms for people in their care. Adding this explanation along with the concerns presumably raised by Dr. Flasterstein, it seemed as though there was concern that Gypsy wasn't ill at all and that Dee Dee was, for one reason or another, making up these illnesses. Dr. Flasterstein didn't alert the authorities regarding this concern he had because without Formally saying it, I think there were concerns that if Didi was maybe suffering with Munchausen by proxy, that she was getting all of these supports and these funds and all of this for Gypsy. Meanwhile, Gypsy didn't have the diagnoses or the issues that she was claimed to have. So to be blunt, I don't say he reported it to authorities, even though to some, maybe even him, it could have been a case of fraud. I came across a couple of different reasons as to why he may not have made this report. First off, when Dr. Flasterstein consulted with his colleagues regarding his suspicions of Dee, Dee and Gypsy, it's believed that his colleagues told him to drop investigators any kind of suspicions he may have had, as the two Blanchard women were highly regarded in the community. Remember, Gypsy and Dee Dee were considered the sweet mother-daughter duo who were struggling to get by. They both were seen as resilient and fighting off their hardships with a smile. Basically, because Dee Dee and Gypsy were so loved by the nation by their, you know, touching story, it would be considerably a hard case for Dr. Flasterstein to convince everyone else that there was something else going on, or that the two were potentially frauds, if you really think about it. On top of this, Dr. Flasterstein would later report he didn't feel he had enough evidence to make any formal statements. I think his thought around the Munchausen by proxy was probably based off of the lack of evidence he was getting from all the tests from Gypsy and based on maybe the dynamic. But There wasn't anything further, there wasn't, as far as my understanding, no one else before him had made those comments in any kind of medical documentation, so I feel as though it probably would have been hard for him to maybe dig back and figure out, okay, how do I make a case out of this? I should also make it clear that based on documentation I came across, Didi was never formally diagnosed with Munchausen by proxy. However, there are accounts that later on, Gypsy noted she felt as though her mother matched every symptom of this diagnosis. That isn't to say that Didi definitely had it, but just something to kind of keep in mind. So let's take a step back further and look at the situation with a few more added pieces of information to make this picture a little bit more clear. Supposedly, when Didi was ever questioned on documentation for Gypsy's diagnoses, so for example, like medical files, anything to that nature... Didi reportedly blamed Hurricane Katrina for losing all of Gypsy's previous medical documentation. With no paper trail and with frequent moves all around the country, it would mean that it would have been more of a hassle for healthcare providers to get a full backstory on Gypsy. The relationship between the mother and daughter was documented in a way that seemed like Didi did most of the talking for Gypsy, meaning she hypothetically had more control of the narrative, which on one hand I can expect, that from a parent because I think in a lot of situations the parent probably does a majority of the talking in medical appointments especially to be that kind of medical historian for their child but based on what I gathered in my research of the case was that Dee Dee did a lot of the talking to the point where she would not necessarily quiet Gypsy if Gypsy was trying to talk for herself but that if you wanted to know how Gypsy was, you asked Dee Dee. To be frank, Gypsy didn't really seem to have a lot of opportunity, especially when she was younger, to really talk for herself. I mean, Dee Dee even homeschooled Gypsy, which some accounts vary in terms of when she was actually pulled out of school, but I can at least say that it seems as though she was pulled out of the public school system before the fourth grade. Some sources claim that this was due in part to Gypsy's health concerns, but you could look at the situation that both Dee, Dee and Gypsy were very isolated or at least limited in who they socialized with. And even those that they did socialize with, it seemed as though Dee, Dee did all the talking. Those that did socialize with Dee, Dee were usually given a long list of all the medical conditions Gypsy had, along with this guise that Gypsy had the cognitive capacity of a seven-year-old despite being much older than that and despite having any formal diagnosis that would back this up. Even so, Dee Dee would only disclose bits and pieces of information which sometimes didn't necessarily add up according to reports. I did read that Dr. Fosterstein noted in his interaction with Dee Dee that she was not necessarily a great historian for her daughter's health which is kind of a concern in and of itself. I'm not a parent so maybe I'm biased in saying this but you should probably know most of your kids health history but referencing the biography article again when someone whether it was friends or family or even medical professionals really questioned gypsy's health or really kind of pushed any kind of statement Didi Dee Dee made about gypsy's health Didi Dee Dee and gypsy would move away or they would separate themselves from that person for example in a direct quote taken from the real life villains website quote When Rod, being Gypsy's dad, began to regularly confront Dee Dee about her treatment of Gypsy and expressed suspicion about her role in poisoning her stepmother, Laura, Dee Dee left with Gypsy for Slidell, Louisiana, although the family would not know this for seven years later. End quote. Basically, if somebody was putting any kind of heat on Dee Dee in terms of asking a lot of questions, wanting her to clarify things or seemingly just kind of poking around, Dee Dee would respond by giving that person the cold shoulder and would literally move away from them in order to i don't know maybe separate her and gypsy away from that person if gypsy and dd were constantly moving then it would be extremely hard to try and really have anyone push their curiosities to the point of breaking the narratives foundation that dd was giving i know earlier i mentioned that gypsy and dd were living in missouri but i want to focus on when they were living in slidell louisiana for a moment so while living in slidell reports claim that Didi and Gypsy lived in public housing. Didi would pay their bills with public assistance. She had been granted due to her daughter's supposed medical conditions and she would also receive child support from Rod. By 2009 there are accounts that an anonymous tipster did connect with an agency regarding concerns that Didi was framing Gypsy to be ill when she may not have been and receiving supports in return. This tip evidently led to two caseworkers or two officers, accounts vary as to who actually went out, but basically two people went out to... Dee, Dee and Gypsy's home to kind of do a home visit to kind of see what was going on. Based on what I further gather, Dee, Dee convinced the workers that the tip was false and that her daughter was ill. Dd reportedly told these two visitors that her disclosing misinformation to others about Gypsy was a way for her to make sure that Gypsy's father, Rod, couldn't get in touch with them. With this, the file was closed and no follow-ups were scheduled. Basically, when it came to Rod in this situation, we'll talk a bit about him later on, but Dee- Edie would often tell folks that Rod wasn't supportive and that they're running away from him because he was abusive. So I think her saying, oh, we're telling people all these different things because we're trying to make sure that he doesn't follow us. It makes sense. And, you know, especially to an authoritative figure, it's like, okay, you know what? You're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to be safe. We get it. And I remember seeing in my research, I think it was that Dr. Phil interview that Gypsy did. I think she recalled how on that day, Dee Dee had given her medication that basically made her incoherent. Like she was, she couldn't stop drooling. She wasn't able to really talk to them. So, I mean, I understand maybe why the workers would have looked at this and been like, okay, you know what? The The tip was wrong. We'll move on. But let's talk about presentation. So Dee Dee would continue to have Gypsy in a wheelchair. It would barely allow for her daughter to speak to those around her, as mentioned before. Gypsy was also dressed kind of childlike and presented with a high-toned voice and ultimately appeared to be kind of a sickly young child. Dee Dee would continuously shave Gypsy's head in order to reportedly make it appear like she was going through treatment that had her hair fall. So kind of, I'm presuming like a chemotherapy sort of situation. And as Gypsy grew, Dee Dee supposedly would lie more and more about her age, even apparently going as far as to change the date on Gypsy's birth certificate I know I've been doing a lot of time jumping already, but I'm going to do it again to elaborate on the whole age aspect a bit further with this direct quote from Good Housekeeping. Quote, It wasn't until Gypsy was a teenager and she discovered her own Medicaid card that she began to question her mother. And this is a quote within, within a quote from Gypsy. The card said I was born in 1991, not 1995 like she'd claimed and told me, Gypsy says. So I was actually 19 at the time, not 15, end quote. No matter how much older Gypsy was becoming, Dee Dee almost kind of put like a pause on her daughter's age. So I want folks listening to picture yourself in Gypsy's situation just for a moment. From the moment you are cognitively aware of your life, you are told that you are sick or you need to be sick by a parent. Someone who you love, trust, and whose lead you will blindly follow. Now imagine yourself slowly begin hearing others question your parent about you. Maybe it starts off with overheard whispers at gatherings, followed by questions bluntly being asked by medical professionals. Everything you are told begins to become a question. Is this real? Is there something actually wrong with me? As Gypsy got older, she began fearing her mother. Someone who she knew loved her dearly, but somehow was responding to her in a very different way. Behind closed doors. As Gypsy got older and, you know, entered her teen years, things would become more tense, with Dee Dee allegedly using physical abuse to control Gypsy in times where Gypsy was not doing what Dee Dee had asked her to or told her to. If Gypsy spoke out a certain way in front of others, perhaps shining a light on the true reality of the situation, Dee, Dee would supposedly squeeze Gypsy's hand tightly, suggesting for Gypsy to perhaps stop what she was doing. For example, if Gypsy would tell her mom in front of others that she felt fine or that she didn't feel ill, Dee, Dee would squeeze Gypsy's hand this indication of squeezing her daughter's hand was not the only sign of concern for Gypsy. And as a heads up, Bit of a trigger warning for the next piece of information as I bring up physical abuse of a child. If you're not in the right headspace to listen to that today, maybe skip forward by at least two, three minutes. So I imagine after situations where Dee Dee would tightly squeeze her daughter's hand that it was also a sign of future punishment to come. I read accounts online where if the two were alone, Dee Dee would strike Gypsy with open hands or with a coat hanger. There's no reason to hate your child. Like, full stop. There, there's no, absolutely no reason to use violence or any kind of physical action towards a child or towards anyone in general, but, you know, especially a child. But this was, based on reports, becoming a more common occurrence as Gypsy got older or, as some resources would put it, as Gypsy began to quote-unquote act out. But let's shift gears here as I have a question for listeners. Remember Rod? You know, Gypsy's dad. We <laughs> were talking about not too long ago. So based on Dee Dee's narrative, Rod was somewhat involved in the beginning. However, at a certain point, that seemed to end. From all accounts, Dee Dee had legal custody of Gypsy. Dee, Dee reportedly would tell friends, family, and others that Rod, as mentioned earlier, was allegedly abusive towards her and Gypsy. According to a BuzzFeed News article, Dee, Dee once told a friend that Rod was a deadbeat alcoholic drug abuser who mocked Gypsy's disabilities and that he never financially helped Gypsy. However, not necessarily the case from what I gathered. In speaking to what I saw online, Rod actually had been in constant touch with Gypsy throughout her childhood and was under the impression made from Dee Dee their daughter was sick. When Gypsy got older, Dee Dee allegedly limited the visits rod had with gypsy but based on what i read in other resources such as the refinery 29 article rod continued to make child support payments so even though dd Dee Dee was limiting how often he got to talk or see gypsy he still made payments like i never saw anywhere and I could be very wrong, but I never saw anywhere where he wasn't financially at least supporting them. On one occasion, which I heard about through Bailey Sarian's YouTube video of the case, Rod had called Gypsy on her presumed 18th birthday to, well, wish his daughter a happy birthday. Allegedly, Dee Dee told Rod not to tell Gypsy it was her 18th birthday because Gypsy thought it was her 14th birthday, which, yeah, I just, it's weird. Like, Why, why would you, why would you lie about that? Like, why would you tell your child they're four years younger than what they are unless you are so deep in a facade that you have to do that? I don't know. For those listening, you'll have to let me know what you think. But I just, when I read that, I was like, that's really sad that like the lies got so deep that they even had to lie about her own age to her face. In a direct quote from that Refinery29 article that I previously mentioned, which was written by Joyce Chen, quote, in reality, Rod continued to support Dee Dee and Gypsy long after Gypsy had turned 18, knowing that, at least according to Dee Dee, Gypsy required full-time care, end quote. Gypsy was isolated from her father, her family members, and she was really unable to make long-term friendships with people around her age. I mean, half the time she probably didn't even know how old she was, right? It seemed like time was ticking before the foundation of this narrative was going to crack. And with that, I'm going to end the first part of this two-parter here. Make sure to tune in next Sunday to hear the beginning of the end of this real-life case. But before I sign off, did you know that five children die every day because of child abuse? According to reports, over 1 billion children worldwide experience violence annually. For more information and resources, please consider checking out the website for the International Society for the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect, which will be posted in today's episode notes. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month, you get exclusive content, such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash WeirdDistract podcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis, but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble, or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me A Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some long-time listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too-close-to-home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. That is so fucked up. It's fucked up. So fucked up. It is just so damn fucked up. That's fucked up. This is that's so fucked up. A podcast about cults, murder, and other fucked up stuff, like really, really fucked up stuff. He cut off her nipples, tore out her heart. Tied it to a rope and hung it on the wall. After spending three years really tapping into her divine feminine, she finds out she's divine masculine. That's a mind fuck. Yeah. How yeah. much of a mind fuck is that? Fucking sharks ate Mark under the dinghy. After his dad dies, he fucking marries all his dad's <gasps> oh, wives. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. He like marries all his stepmoms. <laughs> There was this egg thing where you line up like seven or eight guys side by side. They lay on their backs with their eyes closed. And whoever is like the alpha in the room, they crack an egg into that person's mouth. And then they pass the egg mouth to mouth until they get to the end of the line. And then the last person has to swallow the egg. <sighs> are they, and they're naked? Did you say that? Uh, I didn't say if they were naked. Okay, I just feel like they probably are. But they could are. be. We're well, your hosts. I'm Ashley Richards. And I'm Michelle Mosier. Join us on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. That's fucked up.